This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones, and my career has evolved a good bit over the years. Now, I'm an executive coach, and my most recent book is Find Your Happy at Work. Our repeat guest today is Gerald Leonard. He's an executive coach, and he consults on issues related to productivity, project management, and workplace culture. Gerald is also a highly accomplished professional musician whose long list of credentials includes a master's degree from the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. In his books, speeches, and client work, Gerald often includes musical elements to help explain teamwork and how to get things done. In this episode, we'll focus on Gerald's new book, A Symphony of Choices. The book reads like a novel, and it describes project management by telling the story of a musician who suddenly has the job of managing a symphony orchestra. As we talk today, Gerald will offer tips about how you can become less stressed, more engaged, more productive, and much better at managing projects. Gerald, it's so great to have you back on Jazzed About Work. We had so much fun last time, and I'm delighted to have a chance to visit about your new book. Excellent, Beverly. I'm so happy to be here as well. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to focus on your your book, uh, Symphony of Choices. But um, before we get into that, let me mention that the book tells a story. It's a it's a book about project management, but it is such a fun read because it reads like a novel, and yes. you tell the story of a musician in a symphony orchestra who suddenly finds himself as the orchestra manager. And I think, I might think it's not likely that a musician will suddenly become the manager and become an expert, but I know it's possible because that's what you did. So (laughs) before we get into the story in the book, would you tell a little bit about how you not only, uh, change from being a uh, professional musician to become an expert on all kinds of things related to business and and career, but you've actually seemed to combine both of those careers for the last couple of decades. So would you just tell us a little bit about how you've done that? Sure. So as you know, I, I did my bachelor's and master's in music, um, Went to Cincinnati Conservatory for my master's, moved to New York um, through the Manhattan School of Music. I studied with a gentleman named David Walter at Juilliard for a year, played professionally in, this, in the city. And for about five or six years while I was doing that up in New York, I also did some ministry work. And I decided to that I really was missing music and that was I just felt a calling to be back into music. But at this time, I was married with two kids. And... My dad was always there for me. When I grew up as a kid, I can I have visions of my dad getting up and going to work. He had his own construction business. And so I could not see myself uh, going on the road or traveling a lot 
to be away from my kids because they were my responsibility. So that's kind of how I looked at it. So I decided to get into IT at a time when if you could spell IT, you could get in. And so um, what was interesting, though, was all of the work I had done as a musician actually prepared me for being a IT consultant because it uses the same part of the brain. So picking up the computer was like picking up another instrument. And I use the same principles that I used in music, which is when you want to get really good at something, you go find a teacher or you find a mentor, you find a community. So I did that. Um, you go study. And so I did certifications. And I just found that I fell in love with all of the learning. And at the same time, while I was doing all of that in the IT field, I also did it in music. I was playing, still playing music, still rehearsing, still doing shows and things. And I began to notice that a lot of the similarities that musicians bring to a concert or a show are the same things that really good project teams are really good business teams were bringing to their work, the same passion, the same mindset. And so work became, it started feeling like jazz. And that's kind of the, you know, the book workplace jazz that you and I talked about last time. Yes. And um, through this process, um, you know, I, I realized that I had, you know, developed, I had written a course back in 2015 on this concept that is actually taught in the book. And I also read a book called The Goal by a gentleman named Elliot Golrad, who's who passed away. Uh, I did I do know his son Remy uh, Golrad over in Israel, and it's a business novel that teaches the complexity of theory of constraints, which I actually got a certification in. And so when I thought about teaching my material, I thought about how accessible a business novel was. Um, to presenting that information. And so I looked for a fiction writer who could coach me through the process. And one of my friends, who's a really good uh, editor, ghostwriter, fiction writer, that I partnered with in putting this book together and developing my thoughts and using my content to shape the story, is also a classical musician who happens to have been an orchestra manager himself. <laughs> so, wow, so everything came together. So a lot of the a lot of the details of the book, when it comes to the orchestra manager and the the, the challenges that happen, the you know I'm a classical bass player, so the things that musicians go through, and you know unfortunately I went through a divorce and and got remarried, and so just the whole idea of a marriage kind of falling apart while you're trying to make a living and and deal with life, it's kind of like me telling a little bit of my story, but not exactly through the context of that book. Um, well, thanks. Into details. Thanks for sharing that. I I thought what made this more a better read than than some books that try to do uh, try to uh, tell about what is happening at the office is that Jerry yes. became um, more real because at the same time he had a lot of career decisions to make and and then he got this really challenging job. His um, marriage was falling apart and his right. wife was not being supported of in any way with all the challenges he faced with the family. So I thought it seemed quite real. Uh, I'm sorry that you had to live it to write it so well, but it made for a, a, a more compelling read. So yeah, and that was the goal. Is good that job I really on that. To, I appreciate it. Thank you. I really wanted the material to be accessible to people, but I, and it was also at the time, um, 
the uh, the person I was working with uh, who helped me to shape a lot of these ideas and plot out the story. And, you know, we just leveraged a lot of the content from our own lives and just kind of changed it around and fictionized it to make it, um, you know, suitable for fiction reading or for the for the book was to, um, to to just really embrace the overall journey of where we were going and to really share um, you know the, the 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 things that were going on but also some of the pain points and the challenges but also Jerry when he reached out to his coach uh, dr. Carl Richardson he also um, you know learned the, the the power of mentorship and and growth and he was able to leverage that and started using a lot of these principles in his own life to kind of navigate what decisions he should make as he was going as he, as he was navigating this new world in this in this work environment, but also with his kids and with you know, his spouse that, and the challenges that they were going through. Well, here's what I'm imagining in my head. Jerry sits with his mentor over endless cups of latte, of coffee, in their favorite place. And um, the mentor kind of talks him through as all, and he, all he asks is that, um, that Jerry keeps the coffee coming. And so now I have this vision of you and your friend slash editor sitting in coffee shop somewhere and talking about how you're going to pull this together and how the pieces are. Is there any truth in my imaginary picture? Well, just just replace the coffee shop with a Zoom meeting. <laughs> ah, that's right. It was COVID, of course. Not nearly as much fun. Well, but we, but he, but he and I have we we've worked on one. He he coached me on my first book, and um, and he's a really he's he has become a really good friend. And so by us connecting again and um, leveraging his wisdom on fiction writing and how to best do it, and again it's. You know, so I actually took Jerry's own, you know, uh, the idea of having a mentor or a coach. Uh, when I think about the book, this book probably is much more of a team effort than than just my ideas. Like I had a lot of ideas. I had the the storyline. I had the ideas of it, and we also binge watched Ted Lasso, and that really drew me out. Yes. Like, oh, we gotta we gotta make this like dramatic, and we gotta add some challenges, <laughs> and we. You know, we got to make it multidimensional. He, and he, you know, Jerry has a has a torn rotator cuff, which actually happened to me. <laughs> and, oh my! Uh, but but all of that to say, um, you know, having mentors and coaches in your life, and the tagline I kind of came out developed from this book is, mentors and coaches are like putting you in the HOV lane of your life and your career, because when you're driving along by yourself, you're stuck in traffic, and you know. Oh, that's great. 15 minutes to get home takes you two hours. But if you're in the HOV lane, you can still get home in 15 minutes because you have someone with you. And But you need to have someone with you who has the experience. And so I just, I, I went through my Rolodex, talked to all my different uh, coaches and experts and found some of the best people in the industry who helped me with the title, the subtitle, the cover, you know, hiring the right guy who did, with the cover, uh, hiring the right copywriters to help me think through my content. And so it was a team effort. And even my PR firm, Smith Publicity, they gave me a lot of feedback on, well, you know, what works with a fiction, a nonfiction book that's a story or, or a parable and what doesn't. And that's why at the end of each chapter, you'll find a summation of what Dr. Richardson yeah. teaches. And then at the end of the book, you'll find a summary of all of his teachings and an implementation guide. 
And that implementation guide is a real implementation guide that I use with a major law firm, uh, Amlaw 100 law firm in the DC area. But I just genericized it to so that anyone could leverage that. But that's something I actually used in the real world to transform the way a law firm works. And this was probably about 3,000 people, five countries, 14 offices. So it was, it was a very complex organization. And so I know that the processes work um, because I use them myself to help turn around a, a major law firm and make it a project, projectized organization. What, what struck me about the structure of the book is that it's a pretty fast, interesting, easy read if you don't dig down into those processes. Yeah. And the way I think I would use it if I were um, buying it in preparation for taking on some big project management is I'd read it through and then I'd go back, I'd look at those endings at the chapter and I would work through the specifics, the processes kind of later. I do it in two stages. So you can get the gist of it and then you have a tool that you can use while you're putting together a structure. So exactly, uh, I want to get into um, the content of the book a little bit, but sure. first um, I'm going to read the whole title because this is a long title and it says a lot. The, the main title, of course, is a symphony of choices, but then the uh, complete title goes on to say, How Mentorship Taught a Manager Decision-Making, Project Management, and Workplace Engagement, and Saved a Concert Season. So it's a pretty big title, and the book covers um, a lot of ground. Uh, one of the areas, of course, that the book really focuses on is how... Um, a person, and it doesn't have to be a person who's running something big. It can be, you you used examples of like grocery shopping and things like that, but how anybody who's trying to juggle a, a, a bunch of activities toward a smart end can um, use project management as a way to have things move more smoothly. And you talked a lot about three things that I think some people find to be confusing. Um, yeah. Programs, portfolios, and mm. projects. So to start, would you tell us what your definition is or wh what is the difference among these things and why is it important to kind of break things up to those three buckets? Okay, so I'll start from the inside out. So if you start with projects, a project is, is a simple set of activities that creates a unique product, like, you know, a book can be a project. Um, and it has a, a unique as a beginning and it has an end. So there's like a, 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 a short project. It can be for two weeks. It can be for a month. It can be for a couple of years. But it has a beginning and an end and it follows a certain pathway. And it can just be one off by itself. A program is a group of projects that are all related. So a project by itself doesn't have to be related to anything else. A program is a group of projects that are all related and deliver an overall benefit. In other words, if I deliver, if I implement one or two of the projects, but not all five, I'm not going to get the full benefit of all of those things coming together. But if I implement each of those projects, I'll get the full benefit. And that's why program management is a lot more about benefit management. How does all of those projects that we do together benefit the organization? And a portfolio is made up of programs, multiple projects, 
single projects and also the operational work of the organization. And it's seen as a holistic view. And the idea behind a portfolio is that it is tied to the strategic objectives of an organization or a, a, a company. And it doesn't have to just be a business organization. It could be a, a nonprofit organization. It could be a church. It could be a family. Your, the portfolio is all of the work that's going on because we all, you know, all organizations, whether they're even uh, Apple, which has trillions of dollars, still has limited resources when it comes to people and time that it has. So it has to make decisions based on where it's trying to go to optimally select the right things to be working on. And that's the thing around portfolio management is that you want to make sure you're selecting the right things that you're working on that are going to move the organization forward so that you implement the right programs and the right projects and optimize the operational work. You mentioned um, nonprofits, although we often think of project management as kind of a business thing, but the same Around the same time I was reading your book, I was at a board meeting for a nonprofit that had was taking on a very big, huge new thing. And the um, chair of that particular board is a very accomplished leader. He had a big job in corporate life, and he's very good at uh, programs, portfolios, and projects. And I, I was thinking, all right, this is how it's done, that in a nonprofit, if you have somebody who who knows how to break things into pieces and then puts them together so they make sense. Everybody on the board can um, move along together, even though this was a board with a lot of artists and people who don't have management background. Somebody who can shape the work can be a terrific um, um, leader of a nonprofit, no matter what they're doing. And if you don't come to it naturally, this book, I think, could help a, a nonprofit chair. But um, yes. it's um, pretty uh, easy for some people to think about projects. I, my husband and I have both been in corporate life and done things like that. And for us, everything's a project. You know, if there's a, a problem around the house or somebody's sick or there's a family issue, whatever, to us, we just kind of, after all these years together, think, all right, what's the project? What are the activities? That kind of thing. But (laughs) I know people for whom that doesn't happen quite so naturally. So um, let's say we have listeners out there who are, you know, they don't so automatically break their challenges into projects. Um, And maybe they have some, you know, messy situations at work. Mm-hmm. How how do you help a client, say, who has a problem but isn't sure how to turn it into a manageable project? Right. So you really start with where you are. So first thing you have to do is, and what I mean by that, you have to really identify what is it that you're working on and where are you right now? And that's capturing all of the work. Um, one of the first things I did at a major law firm was to have them give me an inventory of everything that they thought was a project or a problem that they're trying to fix. And, you know, at, at first they thought they had maybe 12 or 15 things. But when I went around and talked to all the different managers, they had over 250 items on the spreadsheet I put together. Wow. So the first thing you have to do is do an inventory of what is it that we're trying to do? 
And then you want to ask yourself, and this is a question you can do on a to-do list, is if I can't get anything else done today, what's the one thing that I have to get done, that I must get done to make progress or just to pay the bills or just to keep the lights on? What is it that I have to do? That will get you to start looking at the list and, and get to the thing that's most important to kind of bubble up to the top. Because otherwise, you just get caught up in the inertia of all that's on your plate, and you never really move the ball forward. And we can't do it all at once. But by identifying that critical constrained item or that that major project, that major activity, you can then go, okay, so this is what we have to get done. And then you want to just, even even with sticky notes, you can go to a whiteboard or even get a big post-it note and just get some sticky notes and start writing down what are the things I have to do to get this done? And start from the start from the end. Don't start from the beginning. Start from the end. If when this is done, it's going to look like this. So to get it to look like this, what does it? What do I have to bring to the table? Well, I should have this in place. I should have that in place. And then you walk back, and then you think about it again from forward on to the to the end of it, and you'll be amazed at how much clarity that little exercise will give you. And if you do yeah. that with the first activity. And then prioritize the other ones and then just take one at a time and just start going through your list. And if there's other ideas that come up, add them to the bottom of the list, but then step back and reprioritize the list to ask yourself, if I can't get anything else done, what's the most important thing I need to get done? And that's, well, that's and so that's that's what I would recommend. But I do have, I think I'm going to, you, you're going to post a link to a web page that I'm going to, uh, I create it for the listeners. And, and, and it, there's on, on there, there's a, a, a worksheet that I created called Every Goal is a Project and Every One is a Project Manager. But think about it. Every goal you have in life has probably has multiple steps, which means it's a project. And so in that booklet, I basically lay out the six things that you need to do to be successful in managing any project of any size. And hopefully that, that is will. so helpful. So yeah, we'll put that preview. in our cover notes here. Yes. Well, you, you mentioned another tool that I really like to use um, with clients. And also, I, I use it myself when I'm thinking about maybe it could be anything from a career change to a house project or all kinds of things. And that is a mind map. Um, yes. It's kind of a, a spoken uh, hub and spoke chart. You, and that I like the visual use. Uh, so your hero, Jerry, I think at one point was doing one. Would you want to tell us how a mind map might be helpful when people are getting sure, started? Sure. A mind map is where you take an idea and then you're trying to come up with additional ideas. But instead of writing a list, um, a mind map works the way our, our the neurology of our brains work. So when you start when you start doing it, it feels comfortable because that's exactly how our brains are laid out. We have one idea that then spawns another idea that's connected to another idea, and they're all connected in one way or the other. And so, you know, if you have a mind map for a book, first thing you think of is you know maybe one of the branches is the chapters, the chapter names. Another branch could be the title and subtitle. Another branch could be the cover design. Another branch could be examples or stories that you want to include in the book, and so on. And pretty soon, you kind of have this middle, you know, uh, circle, if you will, that says, you know, my book. And then the branches 
that go out, shoot out from it are all the parts of the book. And you can begin to kind of brainstorm and it becomes really natural when you pull together a, a thought that way or the, the mind map that way. It's a great way to take notes. I use it a lot when I read a book and I have specific questions I want to get from the book. I'll create a mind map of my questions and then read through the book to identify the answers. And instead of writing out these long sentences, I just write out a statement that captures the essence of my thought, because by this time, my brain knows what I'm talking about. And so when I go back and look at my mind map, I have one page with this mind map on it, and I can kind of go around the mind map and everything that I wanted to remember about the book is there for me. Yes, that works really well. I love the ability to have one page glance at it yes. and be reminded, you know, there might be a, a branch that I had kind of forgotten about, but if I glance at it in just seconds, I know I've got my arms around the whole thing. So it's, exactly. a, it's a really useful tool. Well, you used another concept, I guess. It's not a tool. It's uh, bigger than that. and It's something I'm obsessed by. And I think it helped your hero, Jerry, to work through everything. And that's mm -hmm. uh, a growth mindset. That's the sense that uh, you know that you can grow and you the belief that you can figure it out. Is that a concept you use a lot in your coaching and your, your work with clients? I do. I, first thing, I use it for myself. Yes. <laughs> I use it for myself, and I, and I do use it with my clients. I do use it with my, in my writing and my consulting because we all are, you know, in so many ways, we all are geniuses. And I'm not saying that just, you know, as a pun. I literally mean that I believe we all have the ability to be a genius and because when you think about how intricate our minds are, and the fact that, you know, the scientists have discovered that, you know, this, this concept called neuroplasticity, which means that even in your old age, your brain can still create new brain cells. You can still grow. You can develop. Some of the things may be challenging to do. You know, learning a new instrument may be a little difficult or challenging, but if you stick with it, you will grow new brain cells. And, your brain, and if there's damage or some challenge that you have in your brain... If you do certain exercises or if you work with it a certain way, your brain can rewire itself. Here's an example. In 2018, right before I did my TEDx talk, I had a major bout with vertigo. I was, um, let's just say I, I found myself in a place where the room was spinning. I had oh. to be taken uh, and it was out of control where I literally lost control. I was, it was just like, it was the worst thing I ever experienced in my life. Um, someone had to come in and check me. I had to be taken by ambulance to the hospital. They had to give me a, a shot of something. I don't remember what it was to make it stop. I was in the hospital for a day and a half. And when they kind of got to the bottom of what I had, it wasn't the normal kind of vertigo that they do a little bit of therapy and you're better after a couple of days of rest. This wiped out my vestibular system. I literally lost the ability to walk. I had to, the only way I could go uh -huh. home was to show them I could use a, a walker and, and scoop myself down the hall on the walker. So now I'm going home. I'm a consultant. I have this company and I'm in bed going, is this the rest of my life? And here's That's a blessing terrible. for me as being a musician 
is that as I'm thinking about my TEDx talk, which is called Practices of Performance, Fall in Love with Music and the Neuroscience of Music, I started remembering that by playing my bass, the, the, the playing would activate the brain so much that if there was damage, it would rewire itself. And that's what I learned from the books I read from Dr. Daniel Lehman and others, experts on brain science. And so I decided to put it into practice. And within two to three weeks later, when I walked into my doctor's office, I walked in gated, but very, but, and, uh, and very deliberate, but unassisted. I walked in by myself. And he asked me, he goes, what have you been doing? I said, I'm playing my bass and I'm preparing for this TEDx talk. And, you know, he basically told me that the impact that I had, I had lost 86% capability in my right inner ear, which is the brain. It was a brain, it was a brain injury. But playing music and focusing on the neuroplasticity of the brain allowed, and that growth mindset allowed me that three weeks later, I went on stage and delivered my TEDx talk that's on the TED platform now. And so if you watch that talk, I'm very deliberate in how I move around because I was still very impacted. But I knew then that neuroplasticity was real because if I hadn't had the skills of being a musician or that mindset, my doctors told me it would have taken me two to three years if I would, and I may have never recovered the way I have now. But growth mindset is, isn't just the concept of, oh, I can grow because I can read a book. It's, it literally saved my life. That is an amazing true story. And speaking of your TED Talk, it was on yes. um, practice, right? Yes. And I actually listened to that TED Talk. <laughs> um, and that's another concept that I thought um, people, that kind of goes along with the growth mindset. Right. When you're starting something new, you have to remind yourself that the brains are, we all have our miraculous and that we've done things in the past and we can learn how to do this too, but it doesn't happen in a day. Right. Um, you learn from music that you have to keep practicing. And it's the same with something like organizing projects, isn't it? It's almost it, everything it really in is. life. It really is. And, you know, again, having played music since I was 10 years old and realizing that, you know, to get better, you have to practice. Yeah, you need a coach. You need a teacher. You need a, a band. You need people around you who talk the same language. And so I would do that when I got into project management or when I started learning how to write books. I would put myself in a place where I would be able to practice writing, or I would find a right coach. I would find a writing group of other writers that I could learn from. How do how do they do things? You know, and talk writing. And so I did that for a few years around with AWAI, who's copywriters, and with music and with project management. I was the I became the president of the Microsoft Project User Group for nine years in the D.C. Baltimore area, where I would talk shop all the time and do presentations and bring people in to do presentations, because you have to you have to immerse yourself just like a musician immerses himself in music. Whatever you're doing, you have to embrace it and immerse yourself in that feel listen, you know, listen to, listen to audios, listen to podcasts, read books about it, just immerse your brain in it, but then have people that can talk shop with and then find a coach. And when you do that over a period of time, you begin to embody what that means. So this is an, another important point to get at a, um, we're about out of time, but I want to mention that your hero, Jerry, 
understood the importance of other people, not just in having a mentor and having experts, but project management isn't all about structure and sitting and working at your desk and coming up with uh, ladders of activity and things like that. It is a way of focusing on other people and stakeholders. And so people are an important part of this project management um, world, aren't they? Yes, it is. And, you know, if you think about it, every time a project is completed, whether it's a nonprofit, a church, a family, or a a major organization, a Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 or 50, you're changing some aspect of the culture of that organization or the way things are done, right? So if you change from an online, from a paper-based system to an online system, you're changing people's jobs. You're changing the way things are done. And so you're changing the culture. And so when you're doing projects, you have to think about, and that's why the mentorship goes through decision-making, the project management, but then it says workplace engagement. Because in the book, one of the critical things that happened was a discussion around the the musician's salary and that they really weren't being paid the way they should have been paid. But he had to figure out a creative way to engage the board to help them really experience what musicians go through and the amount of education and training and the, the the cost of their instruments for them to go, wait a minute, this is, you know, these guys are, you know, doctors and lawyers as far as they're in, in the music world. And they, they've applied themselves just as much. And we need to make sure we take care of them. But he had to get the musicians engaged, but he also had to get the board engaged but do it in a way that they could buy in. And I think that's another big part of the workplace engagement, the workplace culture aspect of the project management aspect is as you're doing these things, you have to figure out what's the best way to get people to buy in. And what I've learned is stories. When people understand your story or the story of why you're doing what you're doing, people begin to buy in. Yes, I think uh, it's also a great way to write a book is to understand the power of story. So (laughs) congratulations on that. Gerald, it was wonderful to have you back today. Um, We will put your uh, link um, in our notes, as I said. I recommend the book for people who are interested in managing projects or, you know, just kind of people like me who are sort of uh, career uh, nerds who like to understand how you get things done. So a symphony of choices by Gerald J. Leonard. Keep that in mind. And Gerald, I hope to talk to you for your next book too. Excellent. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate the time. Today, we've been talking with management expert and accomplished musician, Gerald Leonard. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that a difficult problem can be made more manageable if you think of it as a project. And a good way to get the project started is to make a list of possible action items. 
Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating. It can help us attract even more listeners who care about creating rewarding careers. Thank you.